Good morning. Um, great to see you. My name is Bryce. Good morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to Joshua chapter 2. And if you're following along in one of the church Bibles, you can find Joshua 2 on page 178. It's the second week in Advent, and we're looking at the theme of peace. Uh, Christmas is about peace coming into the world. And I was reminded this week of an account I had heard. Um, the year was 1914. It was December of 1914, and World War I was raging um, in Europe and uh, had been raging for five months, and already over a million people had lost their lives in the trenches in World War I. And on December 24th, Christmas Eve, 1914, as the darkness is falling, uh, the, the Axis or the Allied troops are in their trenches and the Germans are in their trenches and they're separated by this distance. And the British troops begin to hear the singing of Silent Night, kind of being carried by the wind over this just desolate war zone. And of course the German troops are singing in German and the English troops are singing in English. But together, these two sides enemies fighting each other on Christmas Eve begin to sing Silent Night together and, uh, and keep each other sort of comf uh, company all night long. And the next morning, Christmas morning, as the sun begins to rise, a, uh, a British troop climbs up to the top of the uh, soldier, climbs up to the top of the, um, the trenches there and kind of sticks his head over and um, looks and waves kind of like, I'm, I come in peace. And he walks out, and a, a German soldier comes out and meets him. And, and slowly, um, you know, soldiers from both sides of the battle come out, and in no man's land, in between these trenches, somebody brings out a soccer ball. And the two, you know, these enemies, two fighting armies, uh, declare armistice for, for 24 hours, and they play a game of soccer there. Um, isn't that a beautiful picture of what Christmas is about? Uh, the peace coming into the world. Even just for this short time, we see this, this picture of Christmas overwhelming the violence, overwhelming the warfare, overwhelming the conflict in our world. And that's exactly what Christmas is all about. Peace coming into the world. But peace in the Bible, peace in the biblical sense, is not just hitting pause on a war or hitting pause on conflict for a short period of time. Whenever the Bible talks about peace, it's a much fuller, um, positive sense of peace. We think of peace as just, well, if there's no conflict, then we're at peace. But when the Bible talks about peace, it talks about shalom. Um, and shalom is, just not, is not just the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of, of, of fullness, of goodness, of all being right in the world. Peace in the biblical sense is having an inner sense of of self-esteem and self-worth. It's having relationships with, with friends and family and neighbors. It's, it's belonging and knowing that you belong. Uh, peace is losing yourself um, in beauty. Peace is being a part of something bigger than yourself, of feeling like you have important work to do in the world and you're caught up in doing something that matters, but that it's larger than yourself. Peace is... Wholeness, peace is completion, peace is 
the sense that all is right in the world. That's what we're talking about when we talk about peace and the peace that comes at Christmas. It's really what we all long for, isn't it? And so this morning, as we're looking at this theme of peace and the peace that comes into the world as Jesus is born and we remember the birth of Christ on Christmas, I want to uh, look at this theme of peace by looking at probably a strange place, the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. This Advent, we are looking at the, the mothers of Jesus, The interesting thing about the the Bible is that when the New Testament starts, it doesn't start off immediately by talking about the birth of Jesus, but it gives us the genealogy of Jesus. And in the genealogy of Jesus, his lineage, his heritage, uh, there are all kinds of names that show up that are just kind of uh, names that you would not expect to see in the genealogy of anybody, names that would have raised an eyebrow or two for the original hearers. And in particular, we're looking at the five women that are named in the genealogy of Jesus, the mothers of Jesus. Um, And last week, we looked at Tamar. And today, I want to look at the the theme of peace by looking at the story of Rahab, Rahab in um, Joshua chapter 2. So if you would, uh, stand with me as we read Joshua chapter 2. Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. Joshua 2, starting in the first verse, it says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house. For they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, for she said, True, uh, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I did not know where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above, in the heavens above, and on earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window. 
for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. Let's pray together. God, would you speak to us through your word? Would you turn our hearts towards you? And in the midst of all that is on our hearts and minds, God, would you give us ears to hear as you speak to your people? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated, please. So what do we learn from Rahab's story about the peace of God that comes into the world at Christmas? Well, there are are three things that I want you to see in this passage. And the first thing is this, that when peace comes, our allegiance will be challenged. When peace comes into the world, our allegiance will be challenged. Uh, What's happening in in the book of Joshua is that uh, Joshua and the people of Israel, God's people, are they are waiting on the banks of the Jordan River and they are about to cross over the Jordan River and enter into the promised land, this land that God had promised to give to his people hundreds of years earlier. The promise of God went all the way back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 where God said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a people and I'm going to give you land. And yet God, as he often does, was very slow to fulfill that promise. And Abraham had great hopes, and when Abraham died, the only land he owned in the promised land was the grave that his wife was buried in. And as time goes on, God's people, um, it takes God, you know, God is slow in, um, in human time. It's taking a long time, and God's people spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt. For 400 years, nations or generations come and go, and yet God is still not fulfilling his promise until God raises up Moses. And Moses leads the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and they pass through the Red Sea. And the people think, finally, we're going to come into possession. Finally, God is going to make good on his promises. Finally, we are going to go into the land. And Moses sends 12 men to spy out the land. And they are terrified. And they say, there's giants there, and there's too many people, and we can never take them. And so instead of following God's promise and living by faith that God will fulfill his promise, God's people spend another 40 years wandering around in the desert until that entire generation has passed away. And so now Joshua, Moses has died, and Joshua is leading God's people. And again, they're on the, break, the brink of coming into possession of this land that God has promised their people. And they're standing there on the banks of the river, and can you just imagine how palpable this sense of of fear and hope must have been? Will we finally actually take possession of this land? Will God finally make good on his promise? And they know we've been here before, and we have failed because we have been fearful and we haven't taken God at his word. And so Joshua begins by sending um, these two spies in to spy out the land. In particular, it says, to, the, to spy out the city of Jericho. And so as Joshua spent, sends these spies in to scope out Jericho, and they go into the city, this is going to be the first city that they're going to take possession of, and they go into the house of Rahab the prostitute. Now that might raise, you know, like why they immediately go into the house of the prostitute? Probably there's a... Um, Probably it was a tavern, it was a meeting place, it was the, um, the place 
that uh, they would have gone to just kind of get the lay of the land and see what people are, what the, what the locals are talking about. And they discover that God has gone ahead of them. As the people are, are you know, standing on the banks of the Jordan River, about to cross into, this, into the promised land, the people of Jericho are terrified because they've heard stories. God's, God's name has gone ahead of them. And even before God's people actually come in to fight this battle that they're going to fight, God is already there. He is already preparing a place for them. They've heard the stories of how he has been faithful, how God has been faithful, and how he's brought his people through the Red Sea. And what we see here is that when God breaks into our world and makes himself known, as God reveals himself to Rahab and the people of Jericho, it comes with a challenge to their allegiance. And the question that is posed to to Rahab and by implication to us is this, in light of what you now know about God, will you alter your allegiance? Put yourself in Rahab's shoes here. She has these two spies in her house. And a message comes from the king of Jericho, which I think means that these are probably the two worst spies in history. <laughs> like, they just got there, and the king already knows. Like, so much for espionage, right? You guys, they're there in the house, and the king has already heard. And somehow word has gotten out, and the message from the king comes and, uh, and says to Rahab, we know you have the spies, hand them over now. And she is faced with this dilemma. What is she going to do? Is she going to hand over these men that are strangers? Is she going to be faithful to her people? Or is she going to, in a sense, I mean, commit treason against her people, really, right? And against her king and declare her allegiance to be on the side of the living and true God. Will she turn her back on her home? Will she remain uh, loyal to Jericho? And turn her back on God. Now I know that um, that might seem like an extreme way to put that, but but it really is as black and white as that. The decision between her is uh, before her is, you know, the options before her are treason and faithfulness to God, or treason towards God and faithfulness to her people. In our own lives, it, it is very rare that it feels like we're faced with that black and white of a decision. Um, But one of the things that the Bible does is it helps us to see our lives as they actually are. And what we see here is the stark reality that you and I, as we live our lives, we are always pledging our lives towards something. We are always pledging our allegiance to something. And when we pledge our allegiance to something, we are inevitably committing treason against something else. When we give our hearts to something... Um, We will always spend our time, our money, we always find ourselves daydreaming about whatever it is that we have pledged our allegiance to. Um, We don't want to put it in those terms, typically, do we? We want to think, well, I mean, it's not quite that big of a deal. Like, we can be kind of more like Switzerland on this. We We can play both sides. We can be faithful to God and whatever else it is. But look at Rahab. There is no neutral option here. The men are standing at the door, and she is faced with a decision. Who will you be faithful to? To whom you will, will you commit your allegiance? And by implication, against whom will you commit treason? Which side are you on? And here's what she says. <laughs> I didn't know where they were from, and I don't know where they are now. 
She's, um, like best case scenario, shading the truth, right? But then in verse 9, she goes up to the spies. She just said, I don't know, I don't know. But what she says to the spies is, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The one thing in all of this that I know that I'm going to camp out on is that God is faithful and he is with you and he is going to be good to you. Obviously, she's shading the truth there. I'm going to talk about that more in a second. But what I want you to see is this. She's placing her confidence that she is certain. The thing that she's going to stake her claim on is the faithfulness of God, the God who has broken into her life. Her allegiance has changed because she's certain that God is real. She's certain that God is at work. She is certain about God himself. And so she shifts her allegiance to God, and she is, in doing so, committing treason against her king, against her people, against the only home that she has ever known. Now, there's no doubt that, um, that we will face uh, situations that will call for our allegiance, but they will almost always look different than this, won't they? Uh, I think it's very rare that we will ever find ourselves in a room where there are, like, spies hiding under the floorboards, and there are people there, and they're saying, which side are you on? And I think in some ways the challenge is that when, the, when the, um, the thing that calls for our allegiance does so in a much more subtle way, it doesn't feel like it's a claim on our heart, on our allegiance, on our being. And it doesn't feel like we have to turn our back on God in order to pledge our allegiance to the things that vie for our affections. And yet what we see from Joshua 2 is that is exactly what is happening. There is no doubt that our allegiances will be challenged. And so here's the question. When God breaks into your life, that's what Christmas is about. It's about the God who shows up in our world, the God who breaks into our lives. When God breaks into your life, are you willing to leave all that has been familiar to you and declare your allegiance to him? That's a pretty big question. So let's not kid ourselves that the answer is going to be easy or obvious. But there is no doubt that giving your allegiance to God will be costly. It will be uncomfortable. It may cost you money. It may cost you relationships. It may cost you, um, well, it will cost you something. It'll cost you your comfort for sure. But like Rahab, we cannot remain neutral. When God breaks into our lives, we are faced with this stark choice about who we will follow and the interesting thing about Rahab, and I think the example that she holds out to us, is that she says, I don't have the answers to all of the questions. But there's one thing I'm certain about, and that is God, I believe the reports of the God who has acted in history. And that's what we have to believe in order to declare our allegiance to him. There are um, so many beautiful stories that I could share um, as an illustration of people that I've seen do this. Um, you know, declaring their allegiance to God no matter what it costs them and finding that he has been faithful. Um, I, he's not here today, so I'm going to talk about Carl Messenger. And um, many of you have seen the faithfulness of the messengers as they have struggled uh, with Maureen's cancer over the last couple of years. And... Um, what you, what you might not know is that Carl uh, tracks our fi the finances of our church. 
And I'd be lying if I didn't say, like, the financial situation of the church is probably the biggest stressor in my life. And Carl and I often have these interchanges, these texts, these conversations where we're going back and forth and we're looking at the projection. And, you know, it's like, well, this doesn't really look that good for us, right? But then I look at Carl and I look at, man, you guys have declared your allegiance to the God who has been faithful. You have believed the report of what God has done in history, that he has broken into history, that on the cross he has given himself up for you, and they are walking through the valley of the shadow of death with unwavering courage. That's what declaring our allegiance looks like. And so Carl, as I just struggle and stress about the finances of our church, Carl is constantly reminding me God is good all the time. God is good all the time. That's what it means to declare your allegiance to God. Christmas is about the God who breaks into our world, who takes on our flesh. It's about God coming and showing us what he is actually like. That's the first thing. Secondly, when peace comes, when peace breaks into our world, it doesn't look the way that we would expect it to look. Uh, This passage is such a like a moral mess, isn't it? Um, You know, there's the people of God that are poised to enter the land, but they're afraid to obey. And uh, the person who is the example of faithfulness and courage is a prostitute, a woman who is um, morally suspicious at best. And uh, she's the the, the shining example of faithfulness. And then yet, even in this passage, like even as she is part of God advancing his plan um, to bring his people into the promised land, she does it by hiding the truth, uh, by misleading her people, by, like I said, church committing treason. Um, it, it's just such a mess, right? Like, what in the world? And, I, you know, you, if you read, like, um, people who write on this, uh, commentaries and scholars, they tie themselves in knots just trying to untangle, like, how can we look at Rahab as this example when she is who she is? Um, and when she does what she does, how can we look at her? What does this all mean for us? Um, and people get into these situations where, you know, it leads you down the road of saying, well, you know, in the end it all works out okay. And I think what we have to do is say, no, the ends don't justify the means here. And the Bible's not saying that, but what this passage is, uh, is that th- this is a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage. That means this, is, this passage is describing what happened, but it is not proscribing for prescribing for us it's not instructing us in ethics you know how we ought to behave and personally i find that very encouraging because you know when we sit here on a sunday morning and look at this you you would kind of sit here in this vacuum thinking what's with these people and how is god using these liars and these shady people and we kind of like step outside of our real lives and forget about who we actually are And the reality is if God is only going to come into my life or your lives if we act in a completely morally upright way, then we are all in a lot of trouble. What we see in this passage is that God uses this woman, this woman who no doubt is in her position because um, she has been abused and victimized by others. and she's a woman who doesn't, you know, she doesn't leave that lifestyle. She's a woman who plays fast and loose with the truth. 
And that is the kind of people that God uses. That is the kind of, those are the kinds of people uh, to whom Jesus comes. The story of Rahab is profoundly good news for people like us because it shows us that God doesn't shy away from our mess. Um, the plans of God are not thwarted because the people he has at his disposal are morally suspicious people. He's going to use all of our mess in order to accomplish his purposes. And the beautiful thing about this is not that God just prevails over the situation, but that in that genealogy in Matthew 1, um, when, as I said last week, you know, God has been silent for 400 years when the New Testament opens. And the first word of the New Testament is not the description of the God who shows up, but it's the genealogy of the God who shows up. And a genealogy in the ancient world functioned in much the same way that a resume might function in our lives. You know, we want to think about who are, like, what experiences do you have? Um, how have you proven yourself? If you're applying for a job, you know, I want to know what is your, uh, what is your work background? But the problem for all of us is we fill out job applications in our resumes. There's always that one thing, and maybe there's more than one thing, in our, in our work history that, you know, we really don't want to put that on our resume, right? So what do we do? Well, we just skip it, right? Because we know if the new boss calls the old boss for a reference, then we're not going to get the job. In the ancient world, they didn't care as much about what have you accomplished, but they cared more about who are your people? What is your background? What is your pedigree? And yet, just like us, uh, in that sort of way of valuing people and your experience, there, of course, are still going to be, like, everybody's got a weird uncle on the periphery of the family tree. And, um, you know, if you know that this guy, this woman, is in my background, in my family lineage, then, then you're going to, you know, look at me with a raised eyebrow, right? And so what would you do? Well, you would just skip it. Um, the, the original King James Version, it would translate this, it used the word begat, right? So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. And that word begat, it doesn't mean that this person was the father of that person. It means that, you know, it was the descendant of this person. And so you just skip a couple generations and nobody knows the better. And yet that's not what God does. When Jesus comes into the world, God seems to go out of his way to highlight the people in his lineage that most of us would skip. And there's a lot of them, but there's especially these five women, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary. Um, you know, two of these women were prostitutes. A couple of them are, are pagans. They worshiped foreign gods. Uh, Bathsheba got pregnant as a result of adultery. Mary was found to be pregnant before she was married to Joseph. Everybody believed the story of how that happened, right? Why highlight these names? Why not just skip over them? You know, these people lived thousands and thousands of years ago. Um, if the New Testament did not highlight these names, and there's many more, I mean, we haven't read the whole... Uh, Matthew chapter 1, Jason and I were talking about it, and we're like, there's no way that we're, anybody's going to do this without just mangling all of these names. <laughs> Some of these names are two, three, four thousand years old. Um, they're hard to pronounce. You know, nobody has these names anymore. These names would have just been lost to history, except for the fact that they're recorded in Matthew chapter 1. 
what that means is this, that these people would be lost to human history apart from their connection to Jesus. Apart from their connection to Jesus, they are forgotten, they are overlooked, they are not remembered. But the whole point of Christmas is that Jesus came into the world to bring peace to a world that is in perpetual conflict. Jesus came into the world to bring shalom, wholeness, to bring fulfillment. And the only reason that we remember the names of these women is because they are connected to Jesus. Um, And the same is true for us. You know, we don't maybe trace our lineage in the same way, but we sure want to polish the resume, don't we? We want to do work that matters and we want to be remembered, and yet the reality is your great-grandchildren will probably not remember you, and your great-great-grandchildren might not even know your name. And apart from your connection to Jesus, you are like a blip on the radar of human history. But the good news of Rahab and the good news of Matthew 1, the good news of Christmas is that if you are connected to Jesus, you will not be forgotten and overlooked by history. The good news of Christmas is that God doesn't back away from our mess. He doesn't say, oh, if you're like, you know, George Washington, if you are this great, great, great person, then you are (laughs) valuable and otherwise you are forgotten. Can you see the honor of being a Christian? Um, You know, there might not be a lot of honor in the world in which we live, um, you know, to claim the name of Christ. But this passage, in a sense, is saying to us, who cares what everybody thinks about you if the king smiles at you? If the king smiles at you, if you're connected to Jesus, who cares what anybody else thinks? Thirdly, When peace comes, when peace breaks into our world, when the peace of Christmas comes, you have an opportunity to become a delivered deliverer. You have the opportunity to become a rescued rescuer. Interesting thing to think about in this passage is who is actually rescuing whom in this passage? Uh, Because, I mean, Rahab is a pagan. She knows nothing of God. So if the spies don't come into her house, into her tavern, whatever, does Rahab ever actually get the opportunity to meet, to encounter the living God? Like, if the spies don't show up in her house, does peace ever come into Rahab's life? But the flip side of that is this, that if, um, once the spies do show up, it seems that Rahab is the one that is rescuing them, right? Rahab is the one who is hiding them from the king, who, if he knows that they're there, is going to come and you know, arrest them. So Rahab seems to be the one who's rescuing them, who's delivering them, who's letting them out of the city. But then as they go, Rahab says, when you conquer the city, when you invade, remember me and remember the kindness that I have shown you and remember my father's household. And the spies say, of course we will. You've been kind to us and we will be kind to you. So mark out your home and get your whole family into your home. And if they leave the doors of your house, we can't promise anything, but if you bring them into your home, then we will spare you. And all who are with Rahab are delivered. So who is delivering whom here? Rahab delivers the spies. The spies rescue Rahab. And the answer, of course, is both. Um, Behind all human action 
In this story, we see a God who delivers his people. Christmas is about the God who delivers his people coming into the world to deliver us from sin and death. And once you've experienced his rescue, he then sends you out into the world to be a rescuer. Those who have been delivered, he makes into deliverers. Those who have been rescued, he sends out to rescue others. When peace breaks into our world, you have the opportunity to become a delivered deliverer. One of my favorite Christmas movies, and I'm going to finish with this, is a, uh, is a Christmas movie that you, it is a Christmas movie, but although you wouldn't really think of it as a Christmas movie, there was a movie that uh, came out with Clive Owen several years ago called The Children of Men. And it's really a dark movie, but it really is an Advent story. And in The Children of Men, it, it's, a, it's a story that's set in a dystopian future where mysteriously the human race has become infertile. And for 27 years, no human being, no child has been born. And uh, it's a picture of the darkness of the world when hope has been removed. And uh, the powerful try to just distract themselves from the inevitable demise of the species. And some have just given up hope altogether. And the, the, uh, the government has this sort of uh, self-suicide sponsorship program that you can opt in on. And it's ugly and it's dark. And in the midst of this darkness, suddenly a woman is discovered to be pregnant. Nobody's given birth in 27 years. And yet there is this woman, and she is pregnant. And the various factions are trying to get their hands on her so they can, you know, exploit this for their own gain, so they can understand what is happening. And she is on the run, and she is in a refugee camp when the time comes to give birth. And she gives birth and nobody knows what to do because nobody's seen a birth in 27 years. And she gives birth to this child. And they bring this child out in the street and there are like warring factions on both sides as clans and thugs are just beating each other up and suddenly there's a baby's cry. And in the midst of the chaos and the conflict, there is suddenly peace. And there was silence as everybody turns and beholds the wonder of this child, this child that was born into a world without hope, this child who offers hope, this baby who has the potential to change the world. Christmas is about the birth of a baby, but not just any ordinary baby. You know, every, the birth of every baby changes the world for someone, right? Christmas is about the birth of the baby who changes the world for everyone. He comes into the world and he grows into a man who called people to leave everything and follow him. He calls for our allegiance. He heals us and then he sends us out into the world to be healers, to be deliverers, to stop worrying about ourselves and to bring peace into the midst of a world that is dark, that needs hope. That's the message of Christmas. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this story of Rahab, for your faithfulness to your people for thousands of years, 
and for the way that you use messy, broken, strange situations and people like Rahab and even like us. God, we pray that this Christmas season you would break into our lives. And as you broke into this world 2,000 years ago, in the birth of Jesus, that again you would break into our lives and bring hope and bring peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.